Welcome to a special Dell Technologies Healthcare Power Chat Genomics Edition podcast, where you hear from the experts about genomics and next generation sequencing technologies. Hello, everyone. Bruce Hall here, and welcome to the first in a series of special Healthcare Power Chat podcasts on genomics and next generation sequencing, or NGS. Our guest today to give us an introduction to NGS and a recurring guest on this series is Sasha Pagel, who's the Global Business Development Manager for Life Science and High Performance Computing for Dell Technologies. How are you doing today, Sasha? Not too bad, Bruce. And looking forward to having you as a recurring guest in this series. But for now, could we get a little bit of your background, please? I actually used to work at the lab bench back in the day. I was a molecular biologist doing some cancer research of all things. One of these IT practitioners in the world of life sciences, I kind of just fell into it. I've had a variety of different positions in terms of software development, product management, in terms of life science informatics, software analytics platforms at a variety of different companies that range from small startups to large pharma. And now I'm here at Dell Technologies looking after our life sciences practice. Sasha, why don't we start at the beginning? Could you define NGS for us and explain why it's important? Before we actually get into what that technology is and why it's important, it's maybe best to just kind of step back and think about what purpose it serves. All our life science customers, ultimately what they're trying to do, if you really just boil it down, is they're just trying to detect differences and then understanding and interpreting what those differences are. In life science speak, you'll hear terms like variation or variance, that type of thing. And if you hear that, what they're really talking about is, okay, we're trying to detect a difference between a control and some experimental condition. And let me understand what that difference is. So if we come back to next-gen sequencing, it all has to deal with DNA, which is the code of life. That code is a four-letter code. It's made up of A, T, G, and C, and all organisms have some amount of A, T, Gs, and Cs. And the pattern of A, T, Gs, and Cs actually drive what type of organism or trait you might have. Sasha, can you explain the connection between this code and NGS? If it comes to humans, which is where next-gen sequencing is used probably the most in terms of biomedical research and a lot of different diagnostic applications, it actually allows you to read the code of life very rapidly. Now you can read out the human genome in less than 24 hours, depending upon how you've got things set up, where that used to actually take weeks or months to actually read out the entire human genome. Which, by the way, to give you an idea of the size of that, the COVID virus is only roughly 30,000 ATGs and Cs, and the human genome is about 6.4 billion ATGs and Cs. So at the end of the day, you can read out 6.4 billion ATGs and Cs in less than 24 hours. Once you have that, you can take all those ATGs and Cs, compare it to a reference. You actually look at the differences, your variants, and then you keep on going downstream to interpret and understand what those differences are. And you can do that in a pretty rapid way, and it becomes really powerful in terms of understanding disease progression, biological processes, response to drugs. There are a ton of different applications. It's a pretty powerful technique. Can you tell us how and why is the use of NGS growing so rapidly? It's growing in part because the cost to sequence any sample in the popular press, you'll see it costs $10,000 to sequence a genome. And now it's down to about $1,000. And probably by the end of this year, depending upon which company brings a certain product set to work first, it'll probably be about $100. Now, I do want to point out that it actually doesn't include any IT costs that are associated with that. 
That said, the fact that prices are dropping brings more research groups into the market. They start asking more questions using this technology. Then as you answer more questions, you also have a lot of innovation that happens and more groups actually can develop or innovate a variety of different applications. It feeds on itself and the more applications there are, there's more questions, there's more use of next-gen sequencing, the price keeps dropping and therefore folks keep going. So that's really the cycle around next-gen sequencing in terms of its adoption. So that cycle makes perfect sense. It's cheaper to do, therefore we're going to do more of them, therefore there'll be more uses for them. What about growth rates then? In terms of growth rates, you probably see between 20 and 30% net new biomedical organizations in the last couple of years coming into the market and actually adopting the high-end NovaSeq 6000 system. This is a next-gen sequencing instrument from Illumina. They're the key market leader in this space. But you're also seeing a lot of groups adopting related next-gen sequencing technologies like from Oxford Nanopore, who are primed to do sequencing in the field and diagnostic applications. So if you just do a search next-gen sequencing, you're going to get a pretty good idea that this space is growing pretty rapidly. So what are the challenges that come along with this rapid growth? To accomplish next-gen sequencing and do it well, there's really two jobs or two challenges that the customers that we engage with think about most. One, being able to actually perform analysis very rapidly. And then related to that is actually managing multi-petabytes of data efficiently or effectively over the long term. And why is that? If you think about the human genome, the initial data set is roughly 100 gigs. If you're studying somebody's tumor DNA, you have your tumor DNA, you compare it to healthy DNA, that actually means you're sequencing two genomes, so that's 200 gigabytes there. And during the analysis process, that 200 gigabytes might actually triple or quadruple in size while you're doing that analysis. And now think about if you're doing that over thousands and thousands of patients, you get to a lot of data very, very quickly. Now you have a lot of data and you want to get through that process as quickly as possible. We'll be talking about that in a sec here. And then the other aspect of it is how do you manage it effectively over the long term? Because you do end up having multi-petabytes of data. And again, if you think about the latest generation of high-end sequencers from Illumina, the NovaSeq 6000. So what kind of volumes of genomic data could the NovaSeq 6000 generate, for example? If you're running that at their optimal state 24-7, you're well over a petabyte of data within a year. And that doesn't include strategies in terms of protecting that data, archiving that data. That's just the pure initial raw data that comes out of the machine and some initial processing. And if you're running these machines over multiple years, there's quite a bit of data. So as expected, petabytes of data could be generated. Sasha, we now have the challenge of wanting to compare 100 gigabyte files with other 100 gigabyte files rapidly and the need to store all this data. How do we address these challenges? A good framework that I often like using when we engage with our life science customers is stepping back and thinking about it in terms of the data lifecycle. And it really just breaks down into three key pillars or phases. The first is data generation. Where are all the sources of data coming from or the sequencing data? The second phase is analysis, and then the third is archive, and they're all actually interrelated, more or less. And if you dive into each one of those, then you're going to see that there's a lot of questions and issues that groups actually need to wrestle and grapple with in terms of how they actually impact those two challenges that we just talked about, fast analysis and effective data management. So can you give some examples of things that might complicate this analysis? Just by having more than one sequencing machine in terms of the generation phase, how does that affect downstream analysis processes? 
can your analysis actually keep up with the output of two machines versus one? What are you going to do if you have a lot of raw data piling up on more high-performance, fast storage, and you don't actually have enough compute power to analyze it, get to a result? Even if you can do that well, that data eventually has to make it to an archive, but it's not a one-way street. What are some of the factors in determining archiving strategy? So if we think about the archive space, there's a lot of trade-offs and challenges there too. So if you think about, say, a children's hospital, you sequence a child early on, you will want to keep that and you do need to keep that sequencing data as part of their record, at least until they're 21, if not longer. And because the analysis techniques and also the sequencing methodologies are changing so quickly, at some point in time throughout that child's life, you'll probably sequence them again. And you'll need to bring back or recall that original sequencing data and incorporate it as part of your current analysis. And this is true for other areas and applications that use next-gen sequencing because you will want to see how someone's genetic differences actually might be changing over time. So to kind of come back in terms of the data lifecycle, you really need to think about how your organization operates. And if you understand how that organization operates, then you can start to think about, okay, what are the choices in terms of the technologies that we want to use so that we can actually live up to the mission of our organization? And actually, not all life science organizations have the same motivations or mission, even though they all might be using next-gen sequencing analysis. So once we have some sense of the requirements of the data lifecycle, how do we translate that into IT strategy? That leads to different trade-offs that IT organizations need to make, whether it's doing it all on-premise computing or do a combination of on-premise and cloud or all cloud even. And in terms of, say, analysis or in terms of choices like where is the data going to live long term? Is it going to be in, say, file storage or, or object or even tape still these days? Some of this data makes its way down to tape. There's a lot of things you need to think about. Can you take us more specifically into the compute options for analyzing this data? Depending upon your available compute resources, it may take you 36 hours, maybe eight hours, or it could actually just take you less than 30 minutes to process that genome. There's really choices in terms of where and how do I get my computing resources? Do I just add more servers? That's possible. Do I augment my on-prem computing with the ability to burst to cloud? We have a variety of partners now that allow you to bridge your on-premise workflows that might be sitting on a file or object storage technology, or a lot of organizations in this space rely on open source analytics software. Turns out a lot of that software is written for one unique project, and it's not really optimized for 24-7, 365 use not optimized for the available computing resources for different types of projects. So you might want to choose commercial software. Can you talk about the use of hardware accelerators or other ways to apply more compute power to this problem? These days, there's a lot of focus on adapting and using hardware acceleration, whether it's from FPGAs or GPUs. Those can actually drastically accelerate your analysis, but there's also different side benefits. So, for example, if you're a sequencing service provider and you have an SLA and you have to turn something around in 24 hours and your data center space is small and for whatever reason, maybe your cloud connectivity is limited, actually having a small, dense compute footprint and using, say, a GPU-accelerated solution, for example, like that from NVIDIA and their latest software acquisition, Parabricks, you could be processing anywhere from 30 to 50 genomes per day, and then you can definitely start to scale that out from there. This concludes part one of our podcast. 
Check back for part two where Sasha discusses options for genome storage, the broader NGS ecosystem, choosing between on-prem versus cloud versus hybrid cloud, and shares some case studies, a quick overview of what's coming in the rest of the genomics series, where to find more info, and final thoughts.